there is a recognition, I think, in our own experience that there are a plethora of reasons why we might find it really difficult to gather together and to worship. There are all sorts of reasons, but the Bible makes it really clear that we should aim to gather together to worship because it is together that we encourage each other and build each other up. Now, I guess that carries a caveat, doesn't it? There are times when our gathering together can act in a completely the opposite way because we're not engaging together in the right way. So there's a warning in that that we gather together to encourage each other and build each other up. But it says, do that. Don't neglect it. We go cold when we pull away. We need each other to keep on moving forward. That's one of the clear messages of the Bible. The Christian faith is not an individualistic thing. We've made it that in our individualistic 21st century mentality. But we are saved to be part of something. We are saved to be gathered into one bride, which is then unified with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb, at the end of, etern- uh, of time, and eternity breaks through. We are here to be gathered into something, to be one. So worship is our whole being. Jesus comment, uh, commended uh, the answer of the questioner when he says, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Now, there are many ways that we can do that in our life, heart, soul, strength, and mind. But there are ways in which we can love God in our worship using our heart, our soul, our strength, and our mind. We gather together and we bring all of those. In other words, what the Bible is, I think it's encouraging us to do is to look at the completeness of us us as human beings, to look at us. as as a holistic being, and say, bring all of that to the worship of God. I think that is absolutely exciting and such a contrast to many ideas of spirituality and faith. It's actually saying, don't try and get outside of yourself. Don't get into some kind of spiritual separation. No, bring all of yourself to the idea of worship. Bring all of you, your holistic being, the oneness that is you, to the idea of worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. So we're looking now at the idea of soul. Love the Lord your God with all your soul. The word soul in the Bible has... Really, it has two ways of being thought about. There is the, the way in which the Bible uses soul or spirit in a way which speaks about the eternal nature of us. So we know from, we read in James, we read in mm, Philippians, I think it is, we read about the, the, the idea that, that the, the nature of us is body and soul combined. We are that in our completeness. 
but there is that time when our body and our soul will be separated when we die with the reuniting of our body and our soul in resurrected eternal bodies. Now, I think that's great because it tells us that if eternal worship is about body and soul, then present worship is about body and soul. But we're not really thinking about that kind of soul when we talk about soul in this, because in a sense, our heart's volition, which we looked at at, at, at the past, is, is an element of our soul. It's, it's a sen- sense of our soul. It's a sense of all that we are. There is another sense in which the Bible uses the word soul, and it is that, that idea of the soul as the, the center of our emotion, our emotional engagement. What do you think about when, when you mention the word soul? In contemporary culture, the word soul probably puts you into various stratas of age. So, if you're kind of teenagers in the 1960s, 70s, you, your mind might go to Wigan Casino and Northern Soul. There's a few kind of whoops from a very small number of people. <laughs> so there's, a, there's that kind of Northern Soul. What, what, what was that all about? It was a movement of that soul expression where it wasn't, it, it was being out of the immediacy and expressing the me in that moment. You might have gone to, to Motown uh, and the whole kind of soul movement of Motown. You might go to a club in Ibiza which talks about soul, privilege, or one of the others. On the other hand, you might go to the Royal Philharmonic Hall or you might go to the Louvre. What are they all speaking about? What are they all expressing? They are all real expressions of being engaged in a moment where that which is surrounding you or in front of you or or weighing in on you is emotionally engaging you. It's doing something to you. I was with... the, The way we respond to art is an amazing thing, isn't it? I was away with friends um, with a huge painting. I, I mean, it, it literally must have been, can't remember who it was by, 35, 40 foot long, maybe 8 to 10 foot high. This was in, um, in Venice. And it was this most amazing picture. I don't know how many characters have been painted in this picture. There must have literally been hundreds of characters painted in this breathtaking Renaissance painting. And I stood in front of it, and I was like, wow. I I was moved. And then who I was with kind of came up alongside me and whispered in my ear, where's Wally? (laughs) And I... I kind of thought, yeah, you don't get this. There's such a difference. 
in the way that we engage. In other words, there are ways in which we are moved and others aren't moved. But there is something about being emotionally moved. There is something in the human dynamic about being emotionally moved. We must be, we should be, we find it very hard to be at times. Our, our kind of barriers of our own innate personalities or either barriers to being emotionally engaged or the fact that we have no kind of objectivity and we're totally subject and we become awash with emotion so, so that there is, there is instability at both ends of the spectrum. But the Bible makes it really clear that part of our human experience, part of our existence, and therefore part of our experience before God is our emotional engagement. Let me give you three little pictures, little vignettes of emotional engagement from the Bible. Daniel in the Old Testament... Daniel chapter 10. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no cho choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. He was moved by his experiences at that time, by what he heard and what he saw. There was a sense in which he looked around, and it didn't just... It didn't just, he wasn't just observing it, objectively saying, oh yeah, see that that's happened. It moved him, it touched him. There was a sense in which he was changed emotionally because of the experience that he was going through. Jesus himself comes to the grave of Lazarus. One of the most, I think this is one for me, I, I know I come back to this very often, but it is one of the most amazing moments I, I think I see in the life of Jesus. Jesus comes to the grave of, of Lazarus and he sees emotion. What does he know? What does Jesus at that time know? He knows that within the next few minutes, that weeping will be turned to joy as Lazarus walks out of the grave. He knows that. But what do we read about Jesus at that moment in time? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Why? Why was Jesus deeply moved in spirit and troubled when he knows what is going to happen in the next few moments? because he was engaging in the reality of their human experience. So much so that we read that in that emotion, in that experience, he says, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied, and Jesus wept. Do you see, they actually deliberately here, the emotions that I'm picking out from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and now we're going to have a look at Paul in the Acts, book of Acts, they are all motions, all emotions 
of sadness, of weeping, the emotional engagement of expressing that reality of my personal experience. Acts chapter 20, Paul is there on the beach with the Ephesian elders, and when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with them and prayed. They all wept, and they embraced him and kissed him. He said, I'm never going to see you again. They know he's going to Rome. They know the implications of that. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in the reality of hope after death. But they see Paul going to Rome, and they know he's saying, effectively, I'm going to die, and they weep. And Paul weeps with them. The Bible is is filled with the reality of our experience. And Jesus says that reality of our emotional experience is what we bring. We're going to be looking now at this narrative, Acts chapter 6. We looked at uh, Isaiah chapter 6. Um, sorry, sorry, it's not Acts chapter 6. This is 2 Samuel chapter 6. We looked at Isaiah chapter 6 for a couple of weeks when we were looking at the idea of the heart. We're going to be looking at this text for the next two weeks. Let me give you a real kind of bullet point run through of what happens so that we get the, the narrative of what's gone on in our heads. The Ark of the Covenant has been previously taken uh, by the Philistines. The Philistines have come into God's, uh, amongst God's people and they've stolen the Ark of the Covenant. They've taken it away. What breaks out on them uh, is a whole load of, of horror, really. All sorts of terrible things go on. God's people under David do not win back the Ark. The Ark is just sent back to them take this away from us, and here's the tribute. (laughs) Get this thing away from us. And the ark turns up, uh, and it's been kept uh, at um, Bala, at the home of Abinadab. David raises an army, 30,000 men, to transport it from the border of the Philistine lands to Jerusalem, to bring it to this place of safety. They load it on a cart, uh, and, and they move away, and it moves until it nearly falls off. At that point, Uzzah tries to grab it, tries to stabilize it. So, the, you imagine this picture, the, the Ark of the Covenant is, is on this um, what's it called? Cart. It was a really simple word, wasn't it? <laughs> Thank you, a cart. Two wheels pulled by two oxen. The oxen stumble, and he just puts out his hand to protect it. Nearly falls, and he's killed. Drops down dead, killed by God. We're going to look in more detail at the ark next week. We're just looking at the overall story. He's killed, and David is terrified at that point. He leaves it, the home of Obed-Edom, for three months. How can I bring this ark to where I am? I am unworthy of this. So he leaves it with Obed-Edom, and then he hears message that Obed-Edom is just being blessed. 
by the ark. He returns, when he, and, and so he returns three months later when he sees that blessing to bring it to Jerusalem. He brings it to Jerusalem. Uh, and as he's entering Jerusalem, he dresses in a particular, and he dances in front of the ark. Dances in front of the ark as it's arriving in Jerusalem. His wife, Michael, is absolutely disgusted at David's behavior as she looks out. So he challenges her, and the response is that for all sorts of other reasons as well, because she is a daughter of Saul, and God says there will be no more descendants of the house of Saul, Michael has no children, but also because of her response to David, she has no children. That's the basic story. But I want to look specifically for a few minutes at this idea of David and his response. The first thing that we see is this, the power of the presence of God. Just let that settle in our minds for a few minutes. The power of the presence of God. There are various little things that we've seen. The exploding out. God's response when the ark is touched. The blessing that comes to Obed-Edom. The way it is described at the very beginning of the chapter. Look at what we see in verse 2. He and all his men went to Baal and Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Almighty Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. The ark is this, this astounding symbol of God's presence with His people. It, 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 you, you, it's almost impossible to find words that are significant enough to describe the importance of the ark to God's people. God has commanded them to build the ark as they've come out of Egypt, hundreds of years earlier, they've come out of Egypt, uh, and as they uh, receive God's law, this new people of God, this, this corporate people of God, who now receive God's law from uh, Moses, uh, the tablets of stone are, are given by God, this is the law of the people, and then God says, now build this ark. Uh, and there are all sorts of ways in which the ark is described, but significantly what we see here is that we see that God's name is written on this ark in figurative terms. There is a sense in which this is God's presence. That law, that way of being is contained within the ark. Various other artifacts are contained within the ark. This is, in a sense, the identification of God with His people. The ark is not some sort of magic box either. I think very often we... Maybe, maybe it's because some of us are almost informed more by raiders of the lost ark than we are by the Bible. The ark is not some sort of magic box 
where anybody who's got it gets the power. What we already know is that the Philistines who took the ark were marked negatively by the presence of the ark. Not because, not because they, they touched it. Isn't that interesting? Uzzah is struck down because of the way he touched the ark, but the Philistines weren't struck down in that way. It wasn't as though the ark had some sort of aura around it that was impossible for anybody to touch, but rather it is about when God's presence is with God's people, then significance occurs. That's the the idea of the ark. When those two things are not combined, God's people either not living appropriately before God, or the God's people having it who are not God's people, then there is crisis, there is problem. But when God's people are with God's presence in a way which is significant, and they're living in that way, then amazing things happen. Now, there is a sense in which we move from that idea of God's immediacy of presence with the ark to the idea of gathering together in this way and coming to the dramatic realization that when we gather together, there is another step up in the significance of God's presence. We live as believers in Jesus with the indwelling Holy Spirit all the time. But there is a uniqueness when we gather together. There is something special when we gather together. There is something amazing which goes on, something supernaturally unique which goes on. This is not just a social gathering. This is not just some kind of religious lecture. This is not just a sing-along. This is God's presence with God's people. And that is going on everywhere that God's people meet. That's the wonder that the New Testament church is. God's presence was with God's people in a very physical way in the Old Testament. But look at it now. God's presence is with God's people in a spiritual way. You are the temple, he says. The temple's gone. You're the temple. And the, the temple is in Yorkshire. It's even in Lancashire. It's all across the UK. It's in France and Germany and Spain and America and China and Russia and and all of the other parts of the world and every place where God's people meet, whether it looks like this or whether it looks very different, whether people wear religious garb in a particular way or whether they sit on couches, wherever the true nature of Jesus is described and engaged with as the presence of God, God is meeting with His people. And what do we do with that? Do we just say, oh, that's really interesting? 
Or are we emotionally moved by the idea that we are met with God's people? There are many things on TV which emotionally move me. There's a whole load of stuff that doesn't, but there are many things that emotionally move me. And I am really, really challenged by that. I am really challenged by that, that I am emotionally moved by stuff that I see, which is very temporary, and there are many times when I am not emotionally moved, when I gather with the people of God in the worship of God. That's a challenge to me. I enter into this without an emotional engagement. And I fear at times that my own personality and the way that I am at times could almost be some sort of suppressing of, of, of an ability for us to be emotionally engaged in the worship of God. I never put my hands up at a football match. <laughs> so, so I don't sing and put my hands up. Isn't it weird? I stand and I can preach and I can do that. I, don't get, I, I find it really difficult. I need your help to build me up, to encourage me, to strengthen me. And some of you might need my help to be balanced. (laughs) But look at the way David responds. So the power of the presence of God is one thing, but the emotion of David is the next thing that we see. Verse 14, critical verse. David brings the ark into Jerusalem. Look at his emotional engagement. Now, let's be really careful before we jump off into one particular way of thinking about David's emotional engagement. The first thing that he does is he dresses in a particular way, verse 14. The linen ephod is what he wears. He was wearing a linen ephod. That is not a mistake. That isn't just a kind of passing, sort of interesting, diversionary sort of comment on the attire that David happened to be wearing. What he is wearing is priestly garments. That's amazing because David isn't of the priestly line. (laughs) But that's what he wears. Why? Why? For those of you who are thinking biblical scholarship in trying to work out how the Bible connects, do you remember when, when Abraham come, comes to, Jacob comes to, Jacob comes to, Melchizedek, king of Salem, Jacob brings offerings to. He brings offerings to the king of Salem who acts in a priestly capacity, an intermediary before God. Who's king of Salem now? David, Jerusalem. King of Salem is now David. And he takes on that kingly role, and he takes on that priestly role, and he wears the ephod, and he dances with all his might. So that he says to the people, 
It is a joyful thing because the presence of God is here. And I will stand in your place and I will display the emotion in a priestly capacity on your behalf. Isn't that an amazing thing? He does that as priest. He dances. He shows emotion for the sake of the people. Isn't it amazing the way that emotions are so incredibly important to us? What do they do? They show what we really think. Well, unguarded emotions show what we really think. We can play tricks with our emotions, of course. But the reality of emotion is it shows what we really think. If, if I say to a few particular people very close to me, I love you, what does that say? Nothing. But if I say it in a different way, with emotion, it means something completely different. Do you know what? Probably most of us use emotion in that way. We try to describe that kind of emotion on almost a daily basis now. We've gone from the kind of, we've moved, isn't it funny? Back in, back in ancient Egypt, they had hieroglyphics. They used pictures to write. And then we came to the literary age, where we write with text. And now we use pictures again. We use emojis. Why? Because it describes how we feel. So we put a smiley face or we put a crying face, or we put a happy face, or we put some other kind of face, and we just hope that the person at the other end has got the necessary te technology to read it so that it doesn't look at some strange string of characters rather than a smiley face. It's what we do. We show emotion, and David is saying at this point in time, it is a joyful thing because God's presence is here. Be filled with joy, he says. Show it, he says. Engage with it, he says. And there is an innate humbling to the idea of showing emotion. And we see it in the reaction of Michael. When David, dressed in an ephod, dances in front of the ark, his wife looks on and is disgusted at his behavior. Verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. When I meet together, when you meet together, and we sing songs, and we emotionally engage in the worship of God, other people might look on and say, that is pathetic. It's 
It's pathetic. What are you doing? Michael's problem was that she has status, of course, married to the king of Salem, to, to King David, and he's making himself look pathetic in her eyes. And not only is his status through the floor, dancing in front, not standing with dignity and honor and power, but giving power and dignity and honor to God instead of himself, her identity is tied up with his. And when he looks bad, she decides, I look bad as well. You look pathetic, so you're making me look pathetic, so stop it. Because you look pathetic giving worth to something else. And very often that is where we're tied up. Because worship is emotionally humbling. It is emotionally humbling to say that there is worth outside of me. Ultimate, eternal worth outside of me. I am dethroned because Christ is enthroned in the action of worship. You might be here thinking, what what is this about? Why would I even think about this idea of worship? I want to encourage you to think really deeply. Worship can be joyful. Worship can be sad. Worship can be moving. But what this says is worship is not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about God. It's about the one who is that mercy seat of the ark, which we're going to come on to next week. It's about looking outside of me. There are so many occasions when I hear, I don't know whether I want to go to this church or that church because is the worship fulfilling for me? Is it going to make me feel good? Oh man, if we compete in that way, we are missing the plot completely. It is all about genuine, authentic, giving glory to Jesus outside of me. I become small and he becomes big. I am so thrilled that the king of Salem made himself look ridiculous to bring glory to the God who we worshipped. But I am even more amazed that the king of heaven made himself, in human terms, look pathetic so that I might come and worship Him. 